Episode 14, The Siege of Leningrad. Snow falls on shattered buildings. A soldier leaps from his dugout, greatcoat flapping in the wind. An emaciated child dressed in rags stumbles dazedly through the square before him. In one fluid motion, he picks up the child and continues to run, feet pounding on the ice-slick pavers. A few seconds later, an enormous crash echoes behind them. A moment after that, a shockwave knocks him to his knees. As the artillery barrage rolls off behind them, he looks back to where they'd stood. There's nothing there now, but a shattered fountain and crater, still steaming in the bitter cold. He looks back at the child, rail thin, starving, too weak to shiver. He looks at the sunken cheeks, the cracking skin, the hollow eyes. God, those eyes. They stare out at nothing, looking blankly into space, indifferent to the world around them. The child is indifferent to the man who just grabbed her, indifferent to the snow falling on her exposed skin, indifferent to the explosion that almost ended their lives. He puts down the child and watches her wander off. There is nothing else he can do. This is Leningrad. Welcome to the finest half hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Last week, we talked about the disastrous fate of the Red Army as the Third Reich swept across the Soviet border in the largest invasion in history, Operation Barbarossa. Army after army was destroyed. Line after line was overrun. Every time the Soviets tried to make a stand, their counterattacks were crushed and their divisions encircled. Over that first brutal summer, the Red Army lost an average of almost 40,000 troops a day. In a few months, the Red Army lost nearly 3 million men. It looked like the Soviet Union was done for. Their army's strength had been reduced by half. Their air force was in shambles. Germans had pushed hundreds of miles past their border. Around the world, strategic planners were counting them out. But the immensity of the Soviet Union is hard to comprehend. The Soviets could lose territory the size of the entire continent of Europe and there'd still be twice that left to conquer. They could lose three million men and, where such a loss would bring any other nation to its knees, they still had almost half their army left. The Germans needed to cripple Soviet industry and one of the main industrial centres was the old capital of St. Petersburg, rechristened Leningrad after the revolution. So today we'll talk about one of the deadliest sieges in history, an event which is more often referred to as an act of genocide than a battle, the Siege of Leningrad. August the 20th to September the 8th, 1941. She digs, desperately, with an old broken-handled shovel. The commissar behind them is shouting about how they are doing heroic service for the motherland, how the Germans will break their teeth on the defences they are now creating. Two weeks ago, she was a cobbler, one week ago, she volunteered to dig the last-ditch fortifications to defend her home. They work all day, every day, she and the other woman on her labour gang. She's growing thinner. She doesn't have enough to eat. But she wouldn't mind if it weren't for the shelling. The Germans fire artillery at them all the time. They're told to just ignore it and keep working. Yesterday, a shell fell so close that her ears bled. 
Another woman motions for her to help unspool barbed wire. They run it along the trench top. Then they hear the telltale whistle of shells. They dive back into the trench. The world shakes. A cascade of earth rains down on them. After a minute, she gets back up to help keep unwinding the spool. Then it strikes her. It's quieter than it was before. The commissar is silent. She pokes her head over the ditch. All she can see of him is one leg and a boot. She finishes unwinding the barbed wire. No reason to stop work. Army Group North has moved rapidly through the Baltic states in the opening weeks of the summer. But as summer turned into fall and the army approached Leningrad, things began to slow. Bad roads meant the army had become stretched thin and tens of thousands of men lagged behind the front. Time was needed to gather them all. Time Hitler didn't want to give. But even with the need to regroup, Army Group North was a dozen miles outside of the ancient capital by the end of August. Here, though, things started to grind to a halt. German casualties increased. A decision was made. Leningrad wouldn't be taken. It would be starved and utterly destroyed. Hitler told his generals, Petersburg, the poisonous nest from which, for so long, Asiatic venom has spewed forth into the Baltic, must vanish from the Earth's surface. The city is already cut off. It only remains for us to bomb and bombard it, destroy its sources of water and power, and then deny the population everything it needs to survive. Calculations were done, and German scientists determined that it is not worth risking the lives of our troops. The Leningraders would die anyway. It is essential not to let a single person through our front line. The more of them that stay there, the sooner they will die, and then we will enter the city without trouble, without losing a single German soldier. This is why the siege is sometimes referred to as an act of genocide. The army, working with scientists, statisticians and the government set out not to take a city, but to kill every inhabitant. By the end of the war, more civilians would die in Leningrad than Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Hamburg and Dresden combined. In Leningrad alone, more Russians would die in the United States and Great Britain lost during the entire war. Yet the Leningraders would stand on the brink of annihilation and face privation with a resolve I'm not sure many other cities could muster. September the 8th to December the 13th, 1941. It's minus 40 degrees. Snow falls in light flurries. The great engine of his ZIS-5 growls as its tyres try to grip the packed ice road. His hands are gloved. His face is wrapped except for his eyes. He looks up, waiting for planes, for the shadows that mean death. Despite the bitter cold, he drives with his door open. If those planes come, if the ice should give way, he might have a chance to hurl himself clear before his truck plunges into the frozen lake below. Every trip it terrifies him. The thought of being trapped in three tons of steel sinking into the dark water. But every time he gets back into the cab and makes another run, because he knows that if he can make it to Leningrad, a few hundred people can live for another week. To understand the siege of Leningrad, we have to understand its geography. Leningrad is located on a narrow strip of land between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ladoga, an enormous lake, the largest lake in Europe, 
roughly the size of Lake Ontario. As the Nazis' army group north came up through the Baltic states, they were able to completely seal off the southern gap between the two bodies of water, severing Leningrad's link to Russia from the south. But since the city was built by Peter the Great to be Russia's window to Europe, and so stood a mere 20 miles from the old Finnish border, where the Finns came to retake the territory they'd lost in the Winter War, they effectively sealed the gap to the north, cutting Leningrad off entirely. Clement Voroshilov, one of the few senior officers to survive the Stalinist purges, was in charge of Leningrad's defence. He survived the purges largely because he'd had a key role in organising them. He was a political crony of Stalin's, far more adept at navigating Soviet politics than leading an army. When a massive shipment of food was sent to the city, he turned it away, stating that to admit that the city might need food would be defeatist. As the Germans closed in, he sent wave after wave of underarmed, undertrained troops in frontal attacks to try to drive them back. These were suicide attacks. They were shattered by the Wehrmacht, and those who survived were hunted down in the forests around Leningrad. By the 8th of September, the last road to the city was cut. No one was getting in or out. No more supplies would make their way into the city. As Luftwaffe raids mounted and artillery pounded the city, the basic necessities of life went one by one. The power stations were destroyed and homes couldn't get heat. The waterworks were ruined and people had to draw water from shell craters. But most devastating of all, right at the start of the siege, the Luftwaffe bombed the warehouses where the majority of the city's food was stored. By the 20th of November, rations for everyone but soldiers and factory workers were cut to two slices of bread a day. And this isn't even bread the way we think of it. Wheat was so scarce that peat shavings, bone meal and sawdust were added to the loaves. Mouldering grain was scraped out of ships that had been sunk in the harbour. A plant was set up to remove the toxins from cottonseed so it could be added to the bread. Guinea pigs and rabbits were taken from the city's laboratories and consumed. Rats, squirrels and pigeons disappeared from Leningrad, eaten by the starving citizens. Grass cakes were sold in the markets. People boiled shoe leather and ate wallpaper paste because it was made of potato starch. Even Pavlov's famous dogs went into the pot. By December the 13th, the first cases of cannibalism would be reported. A mother smothered her 18-month-old to feed her three other children. A father murdered his wife to feed his sons and nieces. Over the 900 days of the siege, the NKVD, Soviet State Police, would arrest 2,105 people for eating human flesh. But even the meagre supply of rations that got to the city was only sustained by the heroism of a few. For Soviet engineers realised, as winter set in, that supplies could be brought to Leningrad by driving over the frozen lake itself. It was an act of desperation. Drivers would have to make the perilous journey across 60 miles of lake ice to bring goods to the besieged city. They would have to do this under constant threat of bombardment, where the Luftwaffe pilots wouldn't even have to hit them to end their lives. If a bomb landed anywhere near a truck laden with supplies, it would shatter the ice and send the truck hurtling into the bitter water below. Initial losses were horrific. 
In the first week alone, more than 40 trucks plunged through the ice, carrying their drivers to a watery grave. But this would be dubbed the road of life because the supply convoys didn't stop. Drivers who lived through the harrowing journey kept going, kept making sure their cargo got through. Though millions died in Leningrad, millions survived because of the heroic efforts of soldiers who never fired a shot. November the 8th to December the 8th, 1941. He peered out into the unending sea of white. Snow whipped vertically, slashed at his face. The world was lost, consumed by the blizzard. The Germans were coming and he was blind. He could see less than a hundred feet. His men were there though, attentive, ready, manning their guns. They were at the eastern edge of the line, holding the town of Tikvin, the last rail junction anywhere near Leningrad. The Germans had pushed and pushed, extending out from their main force, creating a salient that had crept almost to their doorstep. They had neither the arms nor the armour to fight, but they make the Germans pay for every house and every block anyway. Suddenly he heard it, there through the snow, the growl of a Panzer III. His men heard it too. He held up a hand. They had to wait. They couldn't give up their position. They had to let it get right up on top of them. Wait. Wait. A huge grey shape emerged from the storm, oblivious to their position. Fire! The hobnail boots that rung out so proudly as they marched through the Brandenburg Gate now conducted the killing chill of the Russian winter into frostbitten German feet. The Wehrmacht still advanced, but nature itself fought against them. First, torrential rains turned the roads into a morass of mud and slime. Then the Arctic winds had come, and the Germans found themselves totally unprepared. Their clothes were thin, they lacked antifreeze for their tanks. Often they could only start their vehicles by lighting fires below the oil pans. They wouldn't be able to go on the offensive again this year. But they had one last town they had to take. Tikvin, the head of the railroad line that could be used to help bring supplies up to the front. In a furious two-day assault, they overwhelmed the defenders there, who put up a desperate fight, but who simply did not have the equipment or the manpower to face the Wehrmacht. When it fell, Hitler pushed his commanders to drive 250 miles further east to attack targets deep in the Soviet Union. But the army was spent. His commanders told him any offensive would be impossible until the spring thaw. Meanwhile, the incompetent Voroshilov had been replaced by Zhukov, Stalin's ablest general. He oversaw the defensive works being built at Leningrad. Massive rings of anti-aircraft guns were installed. Trenches were dug. Artillery lined the heights. Even the Aurora, the ship that fired the first shot of the Russian Revolution, had its guns stripped from it and dragged to the top of a hill to help defend Leningrad. Soon though, Zhukov was called away to defend Stalingrad, but he left in his wake trusted subordinates who knew that they needed to retake the Tikvin Junction. As the German force in the salient was being depleted by the elements, the Soviets were funneling reinforcements to the area. On November the 12th, they pounced, descending on the Germans' right flank. Local commanders frantically radioed back for reinforcements. 
They were facing a type of tank they hadn't encountered before, the T-34. While most of the Russian armour was still the old T-26s, they had just enough T-34s to force the front line of the German forces into a desperate battle for survival. But Soviet coordination wasn't good enough to press the attack. The Germans regrouped and infantry squads with great bundles of grenades disabled the T-34s by blowing out their tracks. Next, the Russians attacked the left flank of the salient, which devolved into a chaotic hand-to-hand melee in sub-zero weather. German losses continued to mount. The Russians, with reinforcements flowing in, circled behind the Germans, cutting them off from the bulk of Army Group North. A desperate plea was sent to Hitler for a withdrawal. After some vacillation, Hitler at last approved it, so long as they remained within artillery range of the town. Harried by Soviet troops, they pulled back. It was exactly one month to the day since Tikvin had fallen. For the first time, the Soviets had reversed the German advance. It wasn't much. They merely retook one town, a few miles of ground in a country the size of an ocean. But it was a start. And with the railhead back in Soviet hands, they did the unbelievable and, under constant fire, extended the track out right to the very edge of the ice. It was within the range of German guns, and it was nowhere near enough to supply the vast population of Leningrad. But New Railroad was a major boon to the road of life. Conditions in Leningrad were still horrific, but a little more food got through. January 1st to December 31st, 1942. Searchlights flashed through the trees. Shouts in German pierced the night. Every time he took a step, he braced for a snapping branch to draw their attention. His heart pounded in his ears. His breath, white in the winter, sounded loud and heavy. He was being hunted. They all were. There was no way out. On the 10th of January, the Second Shock Army crossed the Volkov River. Their goal? To sweep the Germans from the forests and heights around Leningrad, and thus to break the siege. Over 300,000 men were assembled to make the push. At first, the Germans fell back. A salient was made, a dent in the German line. But the Soviets had almost no armour. Night and day, they came under withering fire from German artillery mounted all around them. Then, disaster. A German counterattack pierced their line right at the base by the river crossing. The second shock army was now cut off. The attackers became the attacked, surrounded on all sides by the very force they had pushed into. The second shock army was virtually wiped out. The few stragglers who made it back across the river had horror stories of being hunted down in the woods. But the Soviet relief efforts were not done. In August, they started to gear up for another major offensive to break the siege. Little did they know that the Germans were also planning an offensive later that month, and that, just behind the German lines, major reinforcements were being brought up, including a formidable new German tank, the Tiger I. This meant that the Soviets were going to be attacking into a larger force without even realising it. They were far better equipped than before though, sporting more T-34s and the recently mass-produced Katusha rockets, the vaunted Stalin organ, 
the rack-mounted missile launcher that could rain down a salve of a dozen or more missiles at a time. On the 29th of August, the organs began to sing, letting out their strange, otherworldly howl. The Soviet forces advanced, catching the Germans off guard with their newly drawn-up troops still far behind the front line. Within a day, they had pushed four miles past the German front line. But then the counterattacks began. The Luftwaffe decimated the Soviet air force, despite being outnumbered two to one. Mountain troops intended for the German offensive were rushed to the front line and put up a savage resistance. And then came the Tigers, which there were exactly four of, two of which broke down immediately and a third's engine overheated. So yeah, the Tiger tank's first action, not so impressive. There were still some bugs to be worked out, but the German counterattack still had their effect. The Soviet advance ground to a halt. For ten days, the fight turned into a bloody slogging match with high casualties on both sides. Finally, the Germans brought up enough of their reserves to mount a major counterattack. Fighting was heavy all along the line. The cost of the Germans was dear, but finally they cut off the Soviet salient. The part of the 8th Army and the poor 2nd Shock Army, which had just been reconstituted, were surrounded and destroyed. But the German strength was used up. The reserves they had built up for a drive to take Leningrad once and for all had been ground down in the savage fight to hold back the Red Army. For the rest of the year, the Northern Front would settle into an uneasy stalemate, as the people of Leningrad continued to starve. January the 1st to December the 31st, 1943. Snow whipped past them as they flew along the frozen ground. The skis of their RF-8, their machine gun armed snowmobile whispered along the drifts. The massive fan that pushed them thrummed quietly behind the driver's chair. They came rushing over a snowbank, tearing through the German column. Men struggling, waist deep in snow drifts, Horses buried to their hocks looked up in shock. The Soviets opened up, machine guns spitting in a wild arc. Horses screamed, bullets thudded into trucks stuck in snow. Germans fell, red blossoming on the winter ground. They hurled grenades as they passed through the very midst of the German column. Then they were through, racing back off into the snowy wilderness before any of the Wehrmacht soldiers even got in a shot. Far in the south, the tide was turning against the Third Reich. German armies were reeling from ferocious Soviet attacks. Army Group Centre and Army Group South desperately needed troops. Without reinforcements, without whole divisions to plug gaps, the entire front might crack. So troops were stripped from Army Group North to help address the momentous events unfolding in the south. It was time for the Soviets to strike. The Soviets had learnt, though, this time they'd be attacking along the Lake Ludoga coast. There would be no chance to be outflanked or cut off. This plan came at a cost, though. They'd be attacking into the teeth of the toughest German defences. The attack would come along a narrow six-mile front. There would be no flanking, no war of manoeuvre. The only way to Leningrad would be straight through. Zhukov returned to organise the Great Push. The plan was for troops from Leningrad to attack from the west, 
just as troops from the once again reconstituted Second Shock Army attacked from the east. They were to link up in the centre and, for the first time in years, create a land corridor for supplies to get through. The terrain, though, was a bog, a swampy morass that tanks could barely traverse. Infantry would have to do the majority of the work, but massive air reinforcements had been called in. At last, the Soviet infantry wouldn't just have air cover, they'd have air superiority to work with. On the night of January the 11th, Soviet bombers launched sortie after sortie to soften up the German defences. Then, at 9.30 in the morning, a massive artillery barrage began, ending in a hail of Katusha rockets. Infantry surged forward as the missiles soared overhead. In the west, the breakout from Leningrad made good progress, smashing the initial German defences and carving a two-mile bridgehead across the Neva. In the east, less progress was made. Troops slogged through half-frozen swamps. Barbed wire and concrete bunkers met them at every front. For six days, they pressed forward under withering fire. Eventually, with the help of air cover, highly mobile ski troops and Erosani, snowmobile battalions, they were able to encircle the German hardpoints. Wehrmacht troops abandoned their positions and made a desperate breakout. They carved their way south to meet up with the rest of Army Group North. Soviet casualties were nearly double that of the Wehrmacht. But, on the 18th of January 1943, troops from the encircled city of Leningrad linked up with the forward units of the Second Shock Army. A corridor had been created through which supplies could flow. The siege of Leningrad was not lifted, but it was broken. <laughs> 